0: A little boy named Aaron, who, there was a tree in his backyard, his dad tells the story, there was a tree in the backyard, and Aaron wanted to climb this tree. Of course, Aaron had never climbed a tree before, and it was kind of cold at the time, so dad kind of waited, but when the weather broke, dad took Aaron out to try to teach him to climb the tree. He thought, yeah, my son needs to learn how to climb a tree. So he takes him out, and he puts him, he lifts him up on the lowest branch of this tree, and immediately Aaron's fear kicks in. His fear of falling kicks in, and he's just kind of paralyzed. And so dad's kind of coaching him along and telling him to, you know, stand up slowly and move to the center of the tree and work your way up. And Aaron is just paralyzed with fear. And, uh, and, and um, he, he was kind of whining, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall. You can just picture a little five-year-old kid, you know, like, I'm going to fall out of the tree, daddy. And uh, finally, uh, dad kind of shouted, got his attention, said, Aaron, Aaron. Don't focus on falling, focus on climbing. And uh, Aaron stopped, paused for a moment, and then he worked his way to the center of the tree and climbed his way up the tree and made it to the top. He had conquered his fear. And about a week later, went out and wanted to climb that same tree, and his dad lifted him up on the bottom branch of that tree, and he said, immediately, he said, Daddy, today, I'm not going to focus on falling, I'm going to focus on climbing. And he climbed up the tree. What a great story, right? Great, to have our focus in the right place. I, I would just like to give us a little slight alteration on that story as we go through life to, to, to really to get the, the full impact of what that story can mean to us. You know, For instance, instead of working, uh, what if we focused on worshiping? And instead of succeeding, what if we focused on worshiping? And instead of achieving, what if we focused on worshiping instead of climbing our way through life? Even if we have our, our eyes looking, what if we focused on worshiping and not just the climbing? How about that? How about instead of looking up the tree, we actually look to the one who made the tree? So today we're going to recalibrate our focus. Week two of this series, The Power of Worship, where we're talking about this idea, really this idea of, of uh, just, just uh, living in the moment and transforming every single day just to live in the moment right here and transform the day. And the power of worship to change our day, to transform every single day, to transform us as we travel through life. The key verse in this series, we looked at it last week. We started off with this verse, Psalm 147.1, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. And we said last week that worship, that praise, it just looks good on us. It's like, a you know, we get up, you know, to go somewhere you know Aaron's going to Aaron Evan's going to go out you know and he gets on the right outfit to go out on the town you know with Michaela and they have a night out together you know we we know we we put on the right we put on the right outfit and it looks good on us and that's what worship is for believers it just looks good on us it looks really good it's fitting but here's the thing we were created, we were designed, we were redeemed to worship. So, I mean, it just looks good on us when we worship. But think about this a minute. Think about worship and think, we talk about the power of worship, right? And so here's the reality. The, the, the thing about the power of worship is when we limit our view of worship, we limit its power in our life. So if I reduce worship to a song I sing on Sunday morning or a prayer I offer or, or a scripture I read or, or five minutes of devotions the first thing in the morning, if that's my view of worship, if I limit it, I limit the power of worship in my life and so we want to see that in this series. Now, there are two key expressions of worship we looked at last week, right? One was gratitude, one was trust. Those were the two key components that undergird our worship. We want to use them kind of this morning and really throughout this series to think about this idea of worship. And 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 today I have a table that I put on your handouts and it's on the screen up here. Basically, that shows all the components of worship and how they kind of come together to give us what we call lifestyle worship. We talk about a lifestyle of worship where it's not just meeting together on Sunday morning for a couple hours and singing some songs and hearing a scripture and having fellowship and that's worship, but no, worship is. All of this coming together gratitude, which would be thanksgiving and adoration and contentment, and then trust, which kind of encompasses surrender and obedience and righteousness, and those things that are, are then expressed through. The songs we sing, the testimony we declare, the prayers we offer, and our response to Scripture. What a great picture there. And if you just look at that and think about gratitude and trust, think about them as the two legs that we stand on in life. That if you stand on trust in God and gratitude to God for all He's done, you can live a lifestyle of worship. If you can stand on these two legs and then use your hands to sing and your hands, your mouth to sing and your hands to serve and and the rest of your faculties and instruments to worship and praise God, that is a lifestyle of worship. Romans 12:1, 1, one of the best scriptures in the Bible about a lifestyle worship, says that this way I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies your mouth and your hands and your feet, as living as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so note in this verse, this note in this, this lifestyle worship in this, ver, in this verse, that it is a response to God's mercy with trust and with gratitude. Because of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, I'm trusting His mercy, and I'm grateful for His mercy. He is so good to me. And so... I offer myself as a living sacrifice. Now there's something else here. We need to unpack this this thought. He says, "Present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable." And I bet you could go find all kinds of sermons today all over the internet that would tell you how to how you can present yourself as a living sacrifice. How you can do this, that, and the next thing and make yourself holy and acceptable. And all of those messages, I'm just going to tell you, they just sell the gospel short and they miss the full impact of this verse. Do you know why you can present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable? Who knows why they can do that? Because yes, because you are holy and acceptable. That's You're a saint. Because I am holy and acceptable, I can then present myself As a living sacrifice. The answer to the the key to this, really, is found in Romans 2. The answer to verse 1 is found in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, how do I live as a living sacrifice? I don't strive really hard, work really hard to make myself holy and acceptable. It's what we talked about in our last series. I set my mind on the Spirit. I renew my mind so I am transformed versus setting my mind on the flesh where I'm just conformed to look and act and think like this world. That's the key. The battle is always up here in our mind. And that's the answer to being a living sacrifice. Set your mind on the Spirit and then you will be Uh, renewed by the Spirit. So we can present ourselves holy and acceptable because we are. Just know that we are holy and acceptable because of what Christ did. And so I can actually be a living sacrifice. That's amazing. People that don't know Christ, I don't care how good a life they live, they can't be a living sacrifice because they do not have the living sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice living in them. And again, the key to presenting yourself as a living sacrifice is to set your mind on the Spirit and renew it and get your eyes off of the flesh because the flesh will conform you to where you will look and you will act just like this world. Now, that said, the key then really to lifestyle worship begins when I remind myself who I am in Christ. Just remind yourself who you are in Christ. Now, if you look at that table and we talk about worship and trust and how we lifestyle worship... Just note at the bottom there, there are ways we express our worship. The songs we sing, the scripture that we respond to, the prayers that we offer. There are things, specific things that we can do to express our worship. And listen, while worship is, is more than a song and it's more than a prayer, while it is a lifestyle, it needs to be expressed. And we will, we will be less than satisfied in our life if we're not expressing our worship. We did that this morning. And can I just tell you, man, I don't, this, this, we have just been singing the lights out in here this la- the summer. I tell you, this, this worship again this morning, that opening song, just like, wow, you guys light it up. And we're just singing from hearts that are full. And so we can't subtract the songs and the prayers and all of that stuff from our worship because it's part of it. Now, Let's move on here to the heart of this sermon. And this could be an epic sermon today, not because of me, but because you get to help me write the very end of the sermon today. So hopefully at the end of the sermon, we'll all take part and have a part in writing the end of this sermon. But we're going to talk today from Psalm 73, a great psalm. And uh, Titus read a little bit at the start of the worship service. And Psalm 73 is written by Asaph, who is a Jewish Jewish worship leader uh, in the temple. He's credited with writing about a dozen psalms. What's key about Psalm 73 is its pronoun usage. That's how you can really. I saw a commentary point this out, and I thought, well, that's fascinating!" And that's just where it's right where it, it unloaded for me, and unpacked for me. The pronoun usage. So let's walk through Psalm 73. Let's uh, let Asaph, this Jewish uh, religious leader lead us in worship this morning. Now the first 12 verses, the dominant pronoun is they, referring to the evil people. And so here's what he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my heart had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. So Asaph starts with a great great affirmation of the goodness of God, the character of God, but then he immediately gets transparently honest and says, but I almost fell. I almost lost my faith. And why did he almost lose his faith? We see in verses, again, 3 through 5. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And Asaph and, and is battling that age-old question we all have wrestled with. Why do the wicked prosper? We look around us, we see the the wicked, the evil prospering, and it sometimes throws us into a loop. We see, when we get our eyes on the circumstances of this world, the, the injustices of this world, it can really take us for a loop, which leads us to really our big idea this morning. We must never base our faith on our feelings. Just know that. Never base your faith on your feelings. And it's so easy to do and not even realize it. Don't base your faith on, you know, um, a Sunday morning. Don't base your faith on a song. Don't base your faith on a circumstance. Or don't base your faith on a feeling. That takes us to verses 13 through 16. We're moving through this real fast. We'll apply it in a moment. But here the dominant town shifts from they, the wicked, to... I, Asaph, and he's talking about himself. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And so here Asaph is focused on himself. And he, he thinks about all that he did for God, kind of like that older prodigal son's brother. You know, all I did for God and I'm rewarded with hardship and adversity. And you know, sometimes we feel like that. We do what's right. We play by the rules and uh, things don't go well for us. We find others that gain the system, that cheat the system and they get ahead. And it's, Someone's just like, well, maybe I should cheat on my taxes too, you know? You know, it's just like, you know, why do the right thing? And that's kind of where Asaph is at. And then we come to verse 17, which I think is the key verse, the transitional verse in this psalm. Oh, I didn't read the rest of this here. He goes on, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And that's a key verse there, the key word there, a wearisome task. He's just focused on himself and life is wearisome. It's getting the best of him. It's beating him down as he thinks and looks at the world around him. And then, as I said, we come to verse 17, which is the key verse in this psalm. The key verse says this, But when I... Thought how to understand this it seemed to me a wearisome task until, note verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. What has happened here? What, ha- what was the turning point for Asaph? He went to the temple and had an attitude adjustment. He went to the temple and his focus and perspective was altered. He went to the temple and he stopped to worship and when he did, things shifted within him. He has a different perspective. He's recalibrated his, his focus. We come on here and we go to verse 18 and the dominant pronoun here is you. Now he's going to start to talk to the Lord. He looked at the wicked, he looked at himself. Now he's, he's, he's actually looking now at the Lord, his focus is on God. And then, verses 23 through 28, this is how it wraps up. He kind of has a mixture. Now he's talking about looking and thinking about the Lord, at the same time thinking about himself, us. It's you and I, it's the Lord and us, and it's kind of a mixture of these two pronouns as he comes to the end of this. And, and basically, in verses 18 through 22, as he focuses on God, he gets an answer to his dilemma He recognizes Yahweh, what the Lord can and will do for him. And then he gets to these very last verses, verses 23 through 28, the end of the psalm. And here, he's looking at himself in contrast, in relationship with God. He's he's affirming who God is, and he is seeing who he is in relationship to God. Worship does that. Worship helps us see ourselves in relationship to God. And that's one of the reasons it's very powerful. It reminds me of the quote that we shared last week. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. Ralph Waldo Emerson. What a great quote. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. Our our deities shape our identities. And you see that in Asaph's life. That as he stopped to worship and get his focus off of the world and off of himself... And off of this pity party, and he got his focus onto God. It totally shaped his identity. It radically affected his focus, recalibrated his focus in a powerful way. And it leaves us with really the great question today: Who or what am I presently worshiping? And if things aren't going well in your life, if you just feel like you're, you know, just things aren't clicking right, if your attitude isn't where it should be, just stop and ask yourself: Who or what am I Where is my focus? What am I worshiping today? Let's look at a handful of verses there in that last section though. Here's what, and, and, and this is what Titus read for us at the start of the service. Nevertheless, this is how he ends the psalm. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You And you can just see uh, just the attitude there of Asaph as he walks through this psalm, as he gets to the sanctuary, as he worships, and as his attitude is changed. And I share the entire psalm to get us to this last verse, verse 28. If verse 17 is the key verse, this is the climax verse. Verse 28 is the climax verse of the whole psalm. And here's what it says. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's read that in the New King James Version. I love this version here. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Can you just read that and you just see the lifestyle worship encompassed in that? Can you just see, think about this, the sense of gratitude in that verse mixed with a reality of trust expressed through this declaration of praise. He just says, Lord, it is good for me to be near you. I have put my trust in you that I may declare all your wonderful works. What a, what a great, what a great, what a great declaration of praise. So here, what I want to do. I want to see three distinct impacts that worship had in Asaph's life. Here's the impact when he recalibrated his focus, when he renewed his mind through worship. This is what it meant to him. This is how it impacted him. Three very distinct ways. And let me tell you, it'll be the same for you and I in your life. That's why you need to hear this. It's going to work the same way for you and I. When we stop, get our eyes on God and begin to worship in the midst of our day. Number one, worship answers life's most difficult questions. Verse 3 I saw I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked and, and and he's just in this place now to appreciate this psalm here by Asaph you have to understand the difficult place that he's in you have to understand where he is you have to see this man juxtaposed against his circumstances can you see a humble man a god-fearing man who leads worship in the temple Standing up and and making that declaration, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Can you hear the echo of his voice throughout the congregation? It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. Great are you, Lord. Can you hear Asaph? And that's his song, and that's what he does in the temple. And then he gets caught up in the world, and he gets caught up in the injustice and the wickedness and the suffering and the circumstances around him. And God is seemingly absent. And he stops singing. It's kind of like there's a terrible criminal who's who's done really bad things and he's brought into court. He's brought into court for his for his date to sit before the judge and to get judgment. And they bring him in, and the judge is a no-show. The judge doesn't show up, and so they say, okay, you can go free. And this wicked man, criminal, just runs free. And that's how Asaph feels when he looks at the world around him. It's like God's a no-show. Look at all the injustice. Look at all the evil. Look at all the wickedness. And as he looks at all of this, it silences his song, it closes his Bible, it stops his prayers, it steals his faith, it almost, causes him to, to stumble and fall. He's spiritually tripped up, but then, that's the key, he has this but then moment, think about it. He had a but then moment, we all need those but then moments. Verse 17 in the New Living Translation says, then... I went into your sanctuary, O God. I had all my focus was all messed up, and I was was a mess. But then, I went into your sanctuary, O God, and everything changed. I started to worship. I got my focus on you, and everything changed in that moment. And he recalibrated his focus. He renewed his mind. He reaffirmed his faith. Again, I want you to hear this humble, holy, God-fearing man, this worship leader, hear his declaration of praise. He says, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And so as he worships here, Asaph gets some of life's most difficult questions answered. We've asked these questions ourselves. Why do the righteous suffer while the wicked succeed? You ever asked that question? A lot of people have asked that. Sometimes, as Christians, we look at somebody like Job and we think, well, boy, I don't want to be too much like Job. If I'm too righteous, maybe I'll be a target. Maybe I'll be a target for suffering. Sometimes, as Christians, you know, you ever play Monopoly, right? And you get that little get out of jail free card. And I think we, as Christians, sometimes think, well, I should get a get out of suffering free card. You know, I'm a Christian. I should just present this card and all my suffering should go away. And that's just not the way that it works. Sometimes God does seem distant and absent. There is a somewhat well-known author or pastor, not super well-known, but he writes a great article here talking about the true source of our joy and our identity and how... The suffering we go through can reveal what that is. Listen to this. Seven seven years ago, after 41 years of marriage, my parents got divorced. It wasn't because of infidelity or abuse, physically or emotionally. My family and I still scratch our heads and wonder exactly what happened. Was it really a case of irreconcilable differences? I don't think that's possible for Christians because of the power of the gospel. It was an incredible painful time for my siblings and me. We experienced a happy, healthy, loving home growing up. We had remarkable parents and they provided the stability we needed as children. I don't know what it's like for a mom and dad to go through a divorce while their children are young. All I know is that it's weird to watch your parents divorce in the stage of life where you have to explain it to your own kids. The Bible states clearly that God hates divorce. It grieves his heart. There was nothing about my parents' divorce that seemed redemptive. I couldn't understand why God allowed it to happen. I was struggling with the whole situation, not simply because I was sad that my mom and dad apparently could not keep the promises they made to one another 41 years earlier, but because part of my identity was wrapped up in being the son of my parents'. I felt important because of their standing in society. My mom and dad were remarkable citizens and church people. Their reputation made me feel significant. I realized years later that much of the devastation I had experienced was due to the fact that I had idolized my parents and their reputation. The author of this article, Tullian, concludes, If the foundation of your happiness is your vocation, your relationships are your money, then suffering takes your a source of joy away from you. But if your ultimate value in life is God, then suffering drives you closer to your source of joy, which is God. What a great article. And that's true for anybody that, that goes through a divorce, that our identity is not tied to a marital status. God doesn't judge us in those ways. But what a great article. What is it that defines us? Where do we find our joy? whatever your struggle is and maybe it isn't a divorce whatever it is it will reveal the suffering that <clears throat> it will reveal to us the true source of our joy and identity and always remembering the suffering that we despise in life think about this causes god to god use that to grow us to take our worship deeper and to sharpen our focus on him another question we probably have asked why is there so much evil in the world <clears throat> Right? And we know the standard answer. There's evil in the world. Why is there evil in the world? Because, well, God gave man a choice. He didn't make robots. He gave Adam and Eve a choice. They chose evil. And that's, that's just, and that's the standard answer, right? Well, God just gave us free will. How well does that answer work for you? You look at the world like, yeah, I understand that, but couldn't God have had a different plan where there wouldn't be so much evil? Sometimes that answer doesn't really satisfy us. And then, how about this question? Do the unsaved really suffer in hell? A lot of our questions kind of revolve around suffering and evil, don't they? Do the unsaved really suffer? In fact, Asaph talks about this reality in verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And so, Asaph's real clear. Hey, there's this thing called eternal judgment for those who don't know Christ. And we know that we know what the gospel says. We know what the Bible teaches. But let's be honest: we all sit down sometimes and say, "But really, God?" And you're a good and loving God. And are all we all know people that we love, and it's like God. Really, are you a loving God going to send people to hell for all eternity? I heard a great <clears throat> uh, phone call this week. Somebody called up the Andrew Farley. Andrew Farley's this guy that's got a radio show and answers Bible questions for people. Oh, what a great answer. lady called up and said, I'm really concerned. My mom and dad, they were Mormons. I don't think they really knew Jesus. I don't think they knew the real Jesus. I don't think they really were saved. And she was heartbroken over that and she was wrestling with the fact that she may never see them again in eternity. And Andrew Farley had a great answer. He said, I understand that your pain is real. Your question's an honest question. And I know that you desperately love your mom and dad and want them to be in heaven Let me just tell you this. You know what? God loves your mom and dad more than you do. And he's more desperate that they would end up in heaven. And he's done everything he can to get them there. And I think we'll be shocked someday at who ends up in heaven, who in the 11th hour God did not get through to, who did not surrender themselves to the cross and to the gospel and to Christ. There are seeds planted in people and we don't know what happens to people in their final hours when those seeds come to fruition. The reality is our most difficult questions in life are answered when we stop to worship. Now, you're probably saying to me, okay, that's great. (laughs) You didn't answer any of those questions. I didn't answer any of them, did I? Well, what's the answer to those questions? How about this? Chiefly, that we can trust a holy and loving God. That God loves us despite the circumstances we face and that we can never base our faith on our feelings, right? And that God's character and truth are always greater than our feelings. That's the the, the answer to each of those questions is the same. It's trust and it's gratitude because God is good and he's faithful. And in life, that's what we do. We simply default to that position of I can trust you. Here's the second thing worship does for us. The second distinct thing is that worship makes us more aware of God's presence. Makes us more aware of God's presence. Uh, And there is something important to share here because there is this modern trend in in worship today where there's this idea that somehow worship causes God to get closer to me. It's like there's a lot of songs that talk about Holy Spirit fall afresh on me. And God, draw close to me like God's far away. Let me just tell you, uh, that is bad theology. That is really bad theology. Here's a reality check. God cannot draw any closer to us because He is already in us. Just know that. God cannot fall afresh on me because He is already living in me. That's That's how close I am. Now the Bible says to be filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's good theology. That's true. But let's look at this a minute from Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're in the Old Testament. We're, we're, again, we're reading someone else's mail here. This is when they're dedicating the temple. And they bring in the whole they bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And they're getting excuse me. They're getting ready to dedicate the temple here. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord. For he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What an amazing moment here as they're dedicating the temple. And you got all these, about a hundred of these, uh, over a hundred actually, these singers and trumpet players on the worship team coming out to worship the Lord. And why is this text significant? Well, it shows us that in the Old Testament, God's presence resided in the temple. That God literally here showed up in the temple. God didn't put a fog machine in the temple to create a bunch of fog so they would feel like he was there. No, he was really, really there. And for the Israelites throughout the Psalms, you'll see this, they would set their eyes on the temple or they would go to the temple. Why? Because that's where they would worship God because that's where God Literally showed up. His presence showed up, and would fall and live in and consume the temple. In fact, you want to know who? You want to know who's leading worship there on the praise team? Anybody want to guess who's on the praise team? Anybody got a guess? Asaph. How cool is that? And this is what Asaph's talking about. Moments like this, when he's at the temple and he's worshiping God, and he gets his focus back where it needs to be. You can read that earlier in 2 Chronicles 5. But let's look at our reality because our reality is different, right? What do we often say? We look at this building here like this is the house of God, right? This building we're in. But not, it's not, it doesn't mean the same thing as it did in the Old Testament. God doesn't come down and live here. We don't go to church. What do we say? We are the church. And here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body Is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, that same glory that came down and consumed the temple. Let me tell you, he lives, that glory, that person lives in you, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you can go through Scripture and find they're all living in you. The reason we can be a a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, is because the once for all sacrifice, the righteous one himself, lives in me. I was crucified with him and I was raised to new life. Now I get it. When we worship... When we worship God, he feels closer. You ever go to a concert, right? You go to a concert and there's 10,000 people there and God just is like, whoa. It's It's like the presence of God on steroids. He just feels so much closer. He's not any closer. You're just more aware of his presence in your life and that's what worship does. Worship makes us aware that he is in here. You see, we never want to base our faith and our theology, for that matter, on our feelings. Never ask the Holy Spirit to fall afresh on you. Ask the Holy Spirit to move in you and through and through you and to take control of you. That's what the Bible says. So know that God's presence in the New Testament resides in the body, resides in your body, resides in my body, resides in our body, the body of Christ collectively in this world. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with or controlled by, that's the idea, the Spirit. May He so fill you and control you. And that's the reality. And we go then to the end of this. Excuse me again. Verse 28, Asaph's declaration of praise. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. It's good for me. Why is it good for me? Why is it good for me to draw near to God? Because I become more aware of His presence, and that causes me to draw even nearer to Him. For Asaph, that trip may have entailed a trip to the that may have entailed a trip to the temple, but for you and me, it responds to the God who lives right here. Just know that it is good for us to draw near to Christ. It's kind of like you ever have two people in a car. And they're miles apart, driving down the road, all in their own world. And worship makes us aware that, hey, God is in the car. God is not distant. He is not removed from us. He is not mad at us. He's never mad at us. He is right here, and He wants to talk with us, have fellowship with us. He's waiting for us. That's why sometimes He speaks to us through a beautiful sunset. Sometimes He speaks to us through His Word. Sometimes He speaks through us through our adversity and our pain and our difficulty. That's the reality. The key is if God ever feels distant, it's maybe because we have tuned Him out and lost sight of Him. I'll admit we go through experiences sometimes and God seems like He's abandoned us. God seems like He's really silent, like, where are you, Lord? We've all been there. And sometimes that's simply because my growth at that moment requires God's silence. But God just knows it; he has to be silent so I can grow. He has to maybe feel distant if that's crazy because that's how I will grow. And sometimes it's in my adversity that he is simply growing me and working and moving in me. Remember last week we said that God made a covenant with himself, a promise with himself to be faithful to you. Faithful to me to meet our deepest need of a Savior. It is good for me to draw near to God, to express my gratitude and trust through a song, through a prayer, through a declaration of praise, by responding to the Scriptures. It is good to draw near. Let me give you a handful of things here. Three things, actually. It addresses any fleshly distractions in my life. In fact, look at this list, and here's what I'd have you do. Look at this list, and and just, can you pick one? that would say, right now, my wearisome task in life, because that's how Asaph referred, a wearisome task. What would you choose? Adverse circumstances, negative emotions, unnecessary burdens, oversized problems, useless arguments, debilitating stress, recurring temptations, misplaced priorities, spiritual battles, false idols. Is there one on there that you would say, right now, that's my distraction from worship. That's getting my eyes off of God and getting my eyes on this world or my circumstances or someone else. That's my wearisome task. Maybe you can just choose one off of that list today and get your focus in the right place. Don't take a big pen and circle the whole thing. <laughs> Don't overwhelm yourself. Seriously, zero in on one. And you might look at your life and think, man, that's, that's all going on. That's right. Wow. All of these distractions can be overcome in worship. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Second thing, second thing, it's good to draw near. It affirms our spiritual beliefs. And, And that's exactly what Asaph does here. He affirms who God is, what he believes about God and where he stands in relationship to God. That's what he does. Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart, he starts with this affirmation and then he gets tripped up when he starts getting his eyes off of God's goodness and he gets him, his eyes on the world, that's when things really tripped up for him. He will end the psalm with some incredible affirmation and then finally, number three, it's good to draw near because it takes our eyes off of our enemy, off of our circumstances and that's what the enemy wants. He wants me focused on him and, and my circumstances and, with, and, and all the stuff in my life that I just can't, defeat or deal with remember the story of David and Goliath and David goes out and there's Goliath and he comes out and remember how in the story of David and Goliath there's an entire army in fact there's a king that all cower in fear to Goliath why do they cower in fear to Goliath because he's so huge he's so big David goes out and takes him on why does David go out and take him on because David didn't look at the size of Goliath he looked at the size of God Goliath might have been three times his size. David could have been a four-foot little runt and Goliath could have been 12 feet. We don't know the exact measurements, but that's quite possible. Three times his size. But Goliath went out and looked at God. You know, the Bible tells us how big God is compared to Goliath. Did you know that? Anybody know how big God is compared to Goliath? Infinitely bigger. He's unmeasurable in his power. David. That's who David looked to. David said, "You're going to defy the infinite God with unmeasurable power." No, I don't think so. And he took down Goliath. And I was sitting at my office desk at this point, rewriting this message, second or third time rewriting through it. I heard a crash in the next room. First, I thought Shad knocked something off the off of the. <clears throat> Off of the wall or something. And then I heard some more, like all his Legos were crashing to the ground. What's he in there doing? So I go in to look. I'm glad I did. Find him laying on the floor having a seizure. He's had them at school, never at home, never experienced one. What a, what a emotionally draining moment. And how do you go forward with that? And how do you, how often will those occur? And how do you safeguard? It's so many questions. And yet you stop and you say, but. My God is greater than my circumstance. We just need to know that. Keep our eyes in that area. And then the third distinct thing here, and this is just a short one to wrap up here, worship sharpens our eternal perspective. And as we've gone through this, you maybe came to the realization that that Asaph came to. I mean, he says it in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Then he got his focus in the right place and as he started to look at the wicked and he started to look at his circumstances and look at God and look at himself and worship, as all of this comes together, Asaph says, well, wait a minute. They're going to die someday and they're going to be eternally separated from God and and what do I have that they don't have? And he's like, wait a minute. I've got something that they don't have. What do we have? Well, look at it again. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. We don't have a what, we have a who. The God of the universe who lives in us, who we can worship, and when we worship him, it just radically alters our perspective. It recalibrates our focus. It renews our Mind. We need to have this vertical focus, a heavenly focus. And can I just say that worship causes us to look up and not to focus on our climbing, to focus on our worshiping. Remember that little boy at the beginning, Aaron, who who said, I'm going to focus on climbing? That was Asaph's issue. Did you notice in the psalm? That's kind of Asaph's issue. He was focused on his climbing. He was focused on his good works and his righteous actions and his clean heart, not the one who made him righteous and clean and the one who empowered him. He was focused on climbing and all that he was doing for God and not focused on what God had done for him and he was not worshiping God. And that's so powerful. And that takes us to what did we learn today then? We learned that we must never base our faith on our feelings. Never. Base your faith, never base your theology on your feelings. On a Sunday morning, on a song, on on an experience, base them squarely on the promises and the word and the character of God. that never change. And then we learned that worship answers life's most difficult questions by teaching us that we can trust a faithful and loving God and then we learn that worship makes us more aware of God's presence. doesn't make God any closer. makes us more aware of how close he really is in dwelling me. Sometimes he's working behind the scenes in my life, and sometimes his, my growth requires his silence. And then we learn, number three, that worship sharpens our eternal perspective. It gets our focus off of this world and gets our focus on to eternity. That's some good stuff. Here's what I want to do this morning as we close. <clears throat> We're a little over, but just I want you to do, want to do one thing. I want you to look at Asaph's declaration of praise, uh, and I want you to take this declaration of praise, and what I want us to do is, uh, <clears throat> one by one, whenever you feel led, I want you to stand up and recite this declaration of praise, just in your own voice. Just, just, just declare it, and, and remain standing until someone else stands and makes this declaration of praise. And we can do this, though, as well. I'll give you the option, and it's on your handout. You can do it either way. Um, you can personalize it. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare your, and you can, you can personalize it this morning. And if one by one we could just stand up and we could make this declaration of praise in the loudest voice that so we can all hear you, I would encourage you to do that. Okay? So...